Welcome everyone to the Top Producer Podcast. I am Paul Neefe, your host, and today we're going to have a conversation with Christine Hamilton from, I believe, if I have it correct, you're near Chamberlain, South Dakota. Do I have that right, Christine? Well, that's right. I am near Chamberlain, but the folks in Kimball would be, uh, <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't say I'm from Kimball, South Dakota. Okay. Now, is that because you're on the west side of the river versus Chamberlain's on the east side of the river? Is that is that sort of how it's uh, differentiated? Well, Kimball is on the east side of the river, about uh, 20 miles east of the okay. river, but it's a town where I grew up. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's like uh, uh, people ask me, well, where'd you grow up? And I'll say, I, I, well, I was born in Walla Walla, but I grew up in Dixie, Washington, and nobody knows where Dixie is. And so, but uh, a lot of people, uh, especially if you're my age where you used to listen to or watch Bugs Bunny uh, cartoons when you're a kid, they Bugs Bunny would say he's from Walla Walla, Washington. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, one of those things. So, uh, Christine, you're a, a farm family. Well, I'll let you, as I always start with these, uh, with these podcasts, I like to get your background. So let's, uh, again, we already know where you, I guess, where you were born and raised and grew up, but, uh, I'll let you go through, uh, uh, your life history. Oh, geez. Let's see. Well, so grew up in Kimball, South Dakota, uh, went away to school my sophomore year in high school. And uh, my parents had a, a house in Arizona in Tucson. So Tucson became part of my growing up years as well. Um, went to uh, high school there, my uh, high school years, and then uh, went to college on the East Coast in uh, Northampton, Massachusetts at Smith College. And then... I, Oh, go ahead. Keep going. <laughs> well, I um, I was an entrepreneur early on, or at least I had entrepreneurial tendencies. I think those of us in farming uh, mostly all do. And uh, I was interested in new technologies, and I I heard of a technology that was a seed treatment technology, and and uh, I invested in that in my early twenties. And my undergraduate degree was in uh, liberal arts. And I found that even though I grew up with my parents both talking about business virtually all the time, I really didn't learn as much as I thought I had. So I decided to go to the University of Arizona and, and get an MBA. And they had just started a program uh, in entrepreneurship. It was before that kind of became a, a buzzword concept in education. And I realized you can't teach entrepreneurship. I mean, even, either you have that that yep. uh, urge or not that drive yep. yep fire in the belly as they say but uh but anyway uh so i spent some time there and and the focus in entrepreneurship there was learning how to write a business plan and so those concentrated courses uh over the course of a year were to um, learn how how to write the plan and what to put in it and what to think about and we had uh, real life entrepreneurs <laughs> as mentors. And uh, so I wrote a business plan based on the business I had invested in. And uh, at the end of it all, lo and behold, it turned out that it was the people, not any of the mechanics of what goes into a business plan. Yep, so yep. Um, learned that lesson early on. And um, I spent a lot of time in South Dakota coming back uh, in the 80s. My parents were both elderly and uh, then in the early 90s, I came back to South Dakota for good, came home, 
uh, to help my mother and her health issues, and then also to um, start to manage the farm and ranch. Okay. And I've been here ever since. Okay. And the list for the listeners out there, describe briefly what is the farm and the ranch. And that is the key. You have a farm and a ranch. Uh, you know, a lot of operations or the ones I have podcasts with, either they're just a ranching operation or just a farming operation. But I think you're a little bit more unique in that you have both. Yes, I think due to the the location of where we are and, and the terrain, the uh, the climate, and the fact that uh, my mother grew up in a, um, kind of a, a merchant family, they homesteaded, but then moved to town and started a general store in the early 1900s. And with the, uh, the proceeds, they bought land. And usually there were uh, people on the land. And so they had rental arrangements. Um, and they also acquired a lot of land during the 20s and 30s, during the hard times, harder times. Yep. And um, so fortunately, people were interested in farming. And slowly during the 40s, people moved away. Um, some of the same challenges we have now. And so she decided in the early 60s to to buy two 4020s and hire uh, a couple to to run them and start farming herself. And meanwhile, my father had grown up as a cattleman. He was a self-made cattleman, and uh, my parents were both older. My father was born in 1898, and my mother was born in 1905. I was uh, adopted at birth in 1955. So they married late in life and and decided to continue running their own businesses um, as they had throughout their um, lifetimes. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. Um, I haven't found because you're a little bit older than me, not that much older, but a little bit older. My my dad was actually born in 1912, and and my mom was born in 1923. And uh, and uh, uh, so it was interesting, you know, when I was growing up, I don't know if you ever had this, but I remember a couple of times, and I won't say I was embarrassed, but it was close to being embarrassed. Somebody would, would say, well, uh, are you here with your grandfather? And I'd have to say, no, that's my father, you know? So it was, uh, uh, but... Uh, uh, but these days, I think you definitely see more and more older parents with with kids. I have some good friends that uh, actually, I think um, he had his first child at like age 50 or 52. So I think that is becoming a little bit more common. I agree. And uh, I, I think it's a good thing there. We have a lot to offer at all stages of life. And, and my parents certainly had a lot to offer me because uh, I came into their lives when they were older. Yep. So it's a, it's a different perspective for sure. Yeah. Although I can tell you raising four boys that are definitely boys. If my <laughs> wife and I were to do that at this age now, now we wouldn't survive. So <laughs> I have a hard enough time uh, keeping uh, or helping uh, watch the two or three grandkids once in a while. So I understand. So, so the farm operation is, and again, and my father was actually born in Selby, South Dakota. So just north of you up on uh, near the river. Um, you know, it is sort of unique. A lot of the what I call cropland is more east of the Missouri River. And a lot of the rangeland is is sort of more west of of the Missouri River. Is is that true for your operation or, or, or how's how's the operation uh, spread out sort of, so to speak? 
Uh, you know, it's it's changed over time. Uh, most of the cropland is east of the river, north and south of Kimball and near Platte. And then the, the ranch is west of the river and west of Acoma, between Acoma and Reliance. And the terrain, you know, that the 100th meridian is uh, kind of runs through Salem, north and south, and it kind of historically got drier as you went west. And so uh, crops were more rare the further west you went. Now I can drive to Rapid City and see corn all the way practically. And I think that's due to some changes in our weather and then also uh, the seed has yep. changed. Yep. And so we have, it's opened up a lot more uh, possibilities. Yeah, I, I remember, cause I used to uh, take my dad on a trip almost every summer um, back to the Dakotas, more up in the Aberdeen area. And, uh, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when I would take them, I never saw corn. I never saw soybeans, you know, it was wheat or flax or sunflowers. Uh, but now you drive through there and that's like you say, primarily what you see in that area is corn and soybeans. That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, we try to add another crop or two into the rotation just for agronomic reasons, but um, certainly corn and beans are compelling. Are you raising most of your crops to feed to the livestock or is that sort of kept separate? No, um, they're, they're tracked separately uh, due to our managerial accounting and cost activity centers, but um, we do try to create synergies and use those synergies like grazing uh, stocks and crop residue. Uh, we try to um, rotate around as much as we can, but we do track them separately. And we do have uh, managers who are dedicated to to each. So there's a, a crop manager and a livestock manager. And I, I think you've been a member of the Farm Financial Standards Council for, for many years. And, and so are you trying to use some of those standards in as far as your reporting process for those divisions and so on? Yes, we are. And um, early on, um, the, as you, I'm sure know, there were three software programs. It's it's kind of a challenge to find uh, software <laughs> for ag. Yep. Yeah, that's <laughs> I guess for we sure. Just, <laughs> we just aren't a big enough audience for um, the larger companies to pay attention to. But but there were three and now there are two. Um, and we use a Red Wing software, uh, Centerpoint. Yep. We started with perception early on, and uh, uh, we have an accounting manager as well, and that uh, that's very helpful. We work with the folks at Centrec, uh, kind of as our CFO folks, and doing some things like risk analysis that uh, we don't really have enough work to to do in house, and it also allows us to to work with people people who have kind of a national scope, but. Um, we do try to know our costs and and try to uh, understand how to allocate allocate those costs and I guess that's where the rub is right uh, <laughs> it how you is. allocate <laughs> yep well and then also there's a cost benefit to, to that too is uh, you know if you spend so much time trying to allocate to the Nats eyelash so to speak you know you've probably spent more money than it's worth so you, you it's a little bit of a teeter totter you got to decide okay, we can get to this level. We don't need to go beyond this level because really it's not 
um, bringing any more benefit to our operation. Well, first, I want to say I learned something. Do gnats have eyelashes? <laughs> I don't know. I just made that <laughs> up. <so. laughs> I've usually I've usually heard a different part of their anatomy. But anyway, um, yes, it's. Uh, I think we have to keep in mind, or we try to keep in mind what uh, we can manage to. So we might collect a lot of data, and and as you know, with <laughs> with this process, we do have a lot of data. Uh, it it is about what will give us information that we can use to make decisions. And and do you find that you use that um, that information fairly often in making your decisions, or is it more? sort of a, I won't say static, but a couple times a year you look at it, or I'm just curious how often you use that data. Well, we have a manager's meeting monthly that includes our crop manager and livestock manager, accounting manager, and me and uh, the folks at Centrec. And we do review the numbers and look at trends and compare to prior years um, and look at where we're going for you know the rest of the year. Okay. Okay. And um, is the is the farm primarily just in South Dakota or do you have any operations in any other areas? I know the farm is just in South Dakota um, at this point anyway. Okay. Okay. And do you still spend some time down in Tucson? You know, I haven't for uh, quite a while. We sold the the house there in the in the '90s, and so I've um, I've not been there very so, recently. So does that mean you winter in South Dakota, or do you uh, do you uh, uh, get away to a little bit of sunshine, a little bit of warm weather in the winter time? You know, we have just started spending a little bit of time further south. Uh, my husband is from Texas. And we have three daughters who live in Texas and one who lives in South Carolina. So uh, we have been just starting last year, spending some time uh, with grandchildren and family uh, in Texas and South Carolina. You know, those grandchildren, you know, it's uh, my saying is, you know, children, the necessary evil to get grandchildren. So uh, uh, although I was my um, son had to go to a funeral this weekend, and so I actually volunteered uh, to help watch the three grandkids and everything was going along pretty well. I was, I, you know, there was no issues and I was trying to get them to bed and I got in cause it's a five-year-old girl and a, almost a three-year-old boy. And, the, and they happened to be sleeping in the same bed just to make it easy. And I thought, Hey, I've, I've, I've got it under control. And turns out my three-year-old grandson found the markers and ended up marking the sheets on the bed. So, uh, um, but uh, I don't think the parents were too upset with that because they've had the same type thing happen to them. So, uh, uh, but uh, they are fun. They can wear you out, but they are definitely fun. So, well, Abs yeah, absolutely. Christine, we're going to take a quick break for a sponsor message and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about maybe not necessarily farm related, but more the entrepreneurial related. And I think you're correct. Almost all farmers I know are definitely entrepreneurs. So we'll go ahead and take a quick break and come back. Okay. How many years away is the long run for a farmer? Five years? 10 years? 
Top producers like Hans Reinchi, a blue diamond farming company in Jessup, Iowa, know RoboAgri Finance shares his enduring vision for the future. Whether it's building our grain site, or if it's purchasing the next field, we're able to turn to Robo as a trusted partner to help us get financing to make those generational decisions. With unmatched financial capacity, local relationship managers, and a global network of sector experts to offer market guidance, Robo Agri Finance provides enterprising farmers with a personalized approach to lending and financial services. Growing a better world together, Robo Agri Finance. Welcome back, everyone, to the Top Producer Podcast, and this is Paul Neef, your host. We're going to rejoin our conversation with Christine Hamilton from South Dakota. So, Christine, you have definitely a farm and a ranch operation in South Dakota, but you're also involved in some other endeavors, uh, entrepreneurial endeavors, and I know one of them is, and I probably probably going to hopefully pronounce it correctly, but it's SAB Biotherapeutics. Did I get that fairly correct? That's right, Paul. Okay. So for the audience out there, what is it? How did you get involved? Uh, what's your involvement and so on? I'm, I'm just curious for the audience. Well, SAB Biotherapeutics uh, now is a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company. Uh, it came to South Dakota in the early 2000s. And my husband and I have been involved in one way or another uh, ever since. Um, the most recent iteration began in 2014, where my husband, the current CEO, uh, Eddie Sullivan, and I are co-founders uh, of this chapter. And uh, our challenge has been uh, to bring this technology to the marketplace and uh, you know, we didn't realize then that uh, getting a product through the FDA process is uh, is pretty daunting. And yeah. fortunately, we were confident. Uh, we went public in October of 21, and uh, our current project is focused on type 1 diabetes. And we're, we make uh, human immuno, immunoglobulins okay. uh, in, in cows. Okay, okay. So you take, um, so I'm just curious. So you, you implant something in the cow and it creates that, or just, uh, describe a little bit more for the audience. Well, you know, in farming, we talk about GMO a lot, and this is, uh, probably the most complicated and complex, uh, genomic story, uh, that's going on right now. Uh, we have taken out the uh, bovine system, the genes that have to do with the immune system in cows and replace them with the human immune uh, system genes. Mm. And then uh, when those cells turn into a calf, we have recip cows, we uh, um, do embryo transplant into or transfer. And when those calves are born, they have a fully functioning human immune system. Mm. And when the calf gets to the age of about a year, we can start vaccinating that uh, animal against an something we want to produce antibodies against. Uh, so it could be infectious disease, 
Uh, now we're working with type one diabetes mm-hmm. and in the future, I hope that we will even begin to do some work in oncology. So it's so, pretty exci- exciting stuff. I mean, just the potential is, uh, has been very compelling uh, for me uh, ever mm-hmm. since I first heard about them. Now, are these calves, are they kept like in a feedlot or are they out on range or I, I'm just curious how what their lifestyle, so to speak, is. Well, these the these calves, and then as they get older, we can uh, work with them until they're three or four years old. Uh, actually, are at a farm spelled P H A R M. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, yep. Yep. South of Sioux Falls, and they are housed uh, inside. You know, it's kind of like think uh, the American beef breeders or somewhere like that, where animals are treated uh, very well mm-hmm. and um, you know looked after on an individual basis mm-hmm. and so one calf I would think could create quite a bit of of um, drugs I guess is the way I I, I guess it'd be a, a drug so is is so one calf during its lifetime you know assuming this process gets you know, more perfected, how many doses maybe would that one calf uh, generate? And again, that might be beyond your, your, your knowledge level, but I'm just sort of curious on that. Well, you know, it depends on what the target is and, you know, some, um, some things that we would target would just take a little bit of a dose and, and others, you know, uh, milligrams per kilogram. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and other targets might take more. It just depends on on what the target is. Okay. But uh, a herd of say eighty cows can produce a lot of product. Yeah, and and it is scalable. It just takes a little bit of time. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to read up on that since it's publicly traded. I'll have to uh, dig into it a little bit more. Being a CPA, I like that type of stuff. So, uh, but. Uh, now, also, you're involved with a venture called uh, Dakota Packing. Is is that correct? Yes, yes. Dakota Packing is in Las Vegas, Nevada, and uh, it kind of evolved out of uh, um, a need in the uh, lamb business in South Dakota. A friend I uh, had noticed that that uh, lamb and veal were declining in South Dakota, and so. He invested in a company in Los Angeles, and through that relationship, I learned of a, uh, folks in Las Vegas who wanted to start a meat company. Hmm. So uh, went out there in the early 2000s, and we we started up, and we are, are still there. Hmm. We serve customers in the casino and restaurant business in, in Las Vegas mainly, but we ship gift boxes i have to say <laughs> okay okay and and is that uh so if people are interested in a gift box would that be they go to dakota packing or what how would they go ahead and order a, a gift box so to speak sure thank you it's uh, dakotapacking.com okay okay i i think uh, i can remember that so and is <laughs> and 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 you mentioned that was for sheep or lamb is that right or did i hear that wrong Actually, it evolved now. It's it's uh, it's all kinds of meats. You know, really um, anything you want, you just order, and we will fill the order according to your specs. So, okay. Okay. Uh, prime beef, uh, you know, burgers. We have great burgers. It's uh, it's pretty much full service 
in all okay. the meats. I'll have to remember that. Uh, and like I say, my dad's from the Dakotas, so I, I like I like that name. So, uh, and then also you have a, a foundation. Uh, you know, describe for the listeners out there what the what the foundation is. So we have a five hundred one c three family foundation, and uh, we try to focus on opportunities in rural areas that are economic development and education focused. So um, our first initiative, for example, was to support non-traditional students as they became nurses. And in central South Dakota, that was through Capital University when it existed in Pierre. Uh, the program was delivered through the University of South Dakota there. And, uh, you know, people could go through and take get their, uh, their nursing degree. And uh, then they pass their NCLEX and become nurses locally. And it was a, a great way to kind of lift up the uh, standard for people in our area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I notice, or I've um, had some discussions with Roger McGowan from Washburn University, which is in Topeka, Kansas. And just to find a an attorney in a rural area these days is getting more and more difficult. You might have one attorney for seven counties, you know, if you're in Western Kansas, or uh, I think even parts of South Dakota be similar to that. And I would think nursing might be the same, you know, as far as, as these rural hospitals tend to either consolidate or close down, that it's getting tougher to attract nurses to that rural area. Is that what you're finding? Absolutely, Paul. It's it's really a challenge. And as you know, the the fewer services we have, the less vitality there is in a rural community. Um, and I've I've ever since I came back to South Dakota in the '90s, I've been alarmed by the declining rural population. And it's it's global. I think last year we crossed that line uh, where more of the the world's population is uh, urban than yep. rural. Yeah. So it's uh it's really something that that we have to think about in small towns and small areas. And I think we have to redefine what community means. You know, one one town might have the the hospital and another town might have the long term care center. Right. So uh, yeah. one has the grade school and one has the high school. It's a uh, it's a uh, it's really something that needs some deliberate attention. Yeah. That's like the little town I grew up in, or near uh, Dixie, Washington. Uh, it was interesting. If you drive through Dixie, you'll see the high school because it's in. It was carved into granite. I'm going to say it says high school, but it's actually the grade school because the high school burnt down. Or excuse me, the grade school burnt down. They moved the kids into the high school, and then uh, once you hit seventh grade, you move into into the wall wall area. And when I went there, there was about 35 kids in, in the school. And now there's about 16, I think, but it's still fairly, you know, there's enough land base in the area that supports two or three or four teachers. So uh, it hasn't closed down yet, but I, I would guess someday it probably will. Yeah. And, and it's difficult to not feel sad about that um, at the same time where we have to develop new models. You know, yep. a lot of people grew up in uh, country schoolhouses where yep. lots of grades were taught in, in the same room. So yep. Yep. It's, that's what uh, I had. Yeah. 
it's possible and and successful. So um, it just it requires some strategic thinking. That, that's sort of how I developed my love of reading. I was in third grade, so first and second grade are one class, third and fourth. So when I was in third grade, I sort of learned fourth grade at the same time. So when I got to the fourth grade, my teacher knew I was going to be totally bored. So she said, Paul, I, you already know this stuff. Why don't you just start reading books? So I started reading books and, you know, that's been now what almost 50 years. Well, I guess it is more than 50 years that I've probably read, you know, between hundred and 200 books every year. So uh, uh, that, that, that definitely, if I'd been in a, maybe a school where there was one class for each teacher, maybe I wouldn't have developed that skill. Although I'm guessing I probably would have. So, but uh, now well, I think, I think you probably would have, but what a gift. I yeah. just have to say that's a, that's a fantastic gift. Yeah. Now you also have some uh, board roles and I saw that you are on the board for the Padlock Ranch, which is in uh, Wyoming and well, probably more in Montana than Wyoming, but I've been to the Padlock Ranch two or three times. We had a Farm Financials Council meeting out there, oh, about 2016, if my memory is correct. Beautiful country, but uh, just what's what's some of the roles that you have on boards? Well, I'm uh, I'm fortunate to have a window into several types of activities on boards. Um, so the the Titan board and the SAB board, uh, and then also uh, the Padlock Ranch, as you said, the Farm Foundation and South Dakota Newswatch, okay. um, in addition to our, our family foundation. Okay. So it's a, it's a great opportunity to, to be able to be involved in something that's bigger than I am and to talk about interesting topics, interesting challenges. Um, there's something to learn from really all of those meetings in some way that can be applied back on the ranch and farm or just in general learning to uh, make life more interesting. Yeah, de definitely agree. So now, based on all this activities you're involved in, I'm, I'm sort of curious, do you have any time for any, uh, any hobbies? <laughs> well, some might say that that uh, serving on boards would be a hobby, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I do like to spend time with family and, and travel and I guess it goes with the entrepreneurship uh, bent and like to see new places. And uh, I also like to read and, and hike. I like the outdoors and um, sometimes hike on the ranch and whenever I can. Now I've, I've developed a passion for pickleball. Matter of fact, I have a uh, pickleball uh, session this afternoon. So uh, that's, uh, that's, and so far I haven't injured myself. So we'll, we'll see if that continues. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm just curious, is there one part of the world that you really like more than, well, not like, but I mean, is there, is there in the last few years, has there been a place you've gone that you really thought was very interesting? Well, you know, it's, it's always the next place. Um, but uh, I do, I do like Central South Dakota. I, I find the prairie beautiful and compelling. Um, but I've also found that all places have beauty. You yeah. know, there's something to appreciate everywhere, and and um, I'm really glad that that I feel that way because it's uh, it makes it very exciting to go to new places. Yeah, my uh, my youngest son, he's our world traveler. He's lived in Thailand. He's lived in Turkey. He's lived in Colombia. 
Um, matter of fact, he's talked me into going to Turkey for about 10 days in April. So, uh, and I've always wanted to visit Turkey because it is a very diverse agricultural uh, country. Now, my son's probably not going to be interested in that, but I'm, I'm definitely going to uh, uh, check that out a little bit. So now, did you have any mentors in this process? Well, I'd have to say that my my mother was my first mentor. Um, she was really ahead of her time. She graduated in 1929 from the University of Wisconsin Law School and uh, had her own practice in Kimball and did contract work and probated estates and actually did some work for the Federal Land Bank in Omaha. So she would drive to Omaha uh, once a week and deliver mm -hmm. the cases she had worked on and pick up new cases. So uh, kind of an interesting uh, model of, of yeah. being an attorney in a small town before women could practice in the courtroom. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you know, the amount of um, change, I guess, is maybe the right, well, that might not be the right word, but just, you know, women just what in the last little bit more than a hundred years have been able to vote and, and other things that they used to be able not to do now, now essentially almost anything a male, well, really more than what a male can do, a woman can do as far as from a business standpoint. Well, it's, I, it's, it's a great uh, trend where we look at people as individuals and, and what our unique talents are and, and try to figure out a good fit for them as yeah. opposed to some of the more um, generic things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and is there anything that keeps you up at night? Well, I usually um, <laughs> stress about things I can't control, <laughs> yep. like the weather, yep. uh, and uh, especially during planting and, and harvesting times of the year, um, I, I do get pretty nervous, but I try to sleep well. Well, and, and I know in the Dakotas, weather is very, very variable. And you go up into North Dakota, and it's probably even more variable, especially for spring planting. You know, some years you just, you know, you just can't get out there and plant. Well, that's right. And those are the times you wonder why you're doing this, but <laughs> but it all works out. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then, and then finally, uh, what's your uh, definition of success in farming? Well, you know, working with the land, um, it's taught me that it's the long game. And um, so success in farming to me is is trying to optimize all of those variables that we need to work with in order to, to create uh, an operation that's sustainable over the years and generations. Uh, we respect the land and, and it gives back to us. Yeah, yeah, no, good definition. Anything else you'd like to, to add before we uh, sign off on the podcast? No, I think you've covered a lot of bases, Paul. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, this has been very, very rewarding. And uh, maybe we'll uh, we'll have another conversation a year or two to see how uh, SAB is going. Oh, that would be great. Thank okay. you. Again, this is the Top Producer Podcast, and this is Paul Nefer, your host, signing off. <laughs>